Good morning. Uh, I brought a, a picture for you this morning. Uh, a few years ago, uh, this picture made the rounds. Uh, some of you will be maybe immediately familiar with it. Some of you won't. Uh, it's a picture ostensibly of um, McDonald's chicken nuggets. This went all over the place. It was all over the internet. And we all read this in horror because they said this is what McDonald's chicken nuggets are made out of. This is, what they do is they take whole chickens and like beak, feet, eyeballs, everything, and they cram them through this strainer and then they soak that whole mix in ammonia and, and what you end up with is this and this is what the, the chicken nuggets are made out of and we all said, it is? There's a big problem with that. There are actually a few big problems with that. Um, at first, then other stories started to circulate and other stories attributed this not to McDonald's chicken nuggets, but to Burger King chicken patties that were used on their sandwiches. The exact same picture. Like, oh, well, wait. And then some other photographs, or, or the same photograph, was sometimes attached to stories that said, this is what hamburger patties are made from. And then you started to wonder, now wait a minute, wait. It can't be all of those things, can it? Uh, McDonald's opened the doors to their chicken plant, chicken plant, <laughs> wherever they get their chicken, and said, look, we'll show you, like we can show you how we make our chicken. It certainly isn't that. It certainly isn't. Now, there is this thing called um, mechanically separated meat or mechanically separated chicken. Uh, where they, you know, in order to try to get the most meat they can, but but it's it's done not with whole chickens. The meat industry says that's not how we do it. We process the meat as best we can, but you know you can't get everything off the bone, or we're trying to get everything possible off the bone. And so we do sometimes do this thing where where we try to get it, and it's not soaked in ammonia. And then the beef industry said, well, yeah, we do something similar where we process the meat and then there are these extra scraps that are left over, but they're not really usable, partly because they have way too much fat in them. So we do this thing where we put it all in a centrifuge and spin it out, where we spin the fat out so that what's left is this finely textured, really lean meat. Um, to this day, I still don't really know if that's what that's a picture of or if that's just frozen yogurt. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I really can't tell. And same thing, they said, but we don't soak it in ammonia. I mean, it's treated with a, a, an ammonia and, uh, oxide gas, you, you know, that, that lightly just to make sure that it doesn't have any bacteria in it, so the safe to eat. And it's added to other meats, you know. Since then, a lot of companies have stopped using a lot of these things because there's such an outcry. People say, well, we don't really want that in our food. And so companies have said, well, Okay, fair enough, you know, McDonald's did change their chicken nuggets are now made from all white breast meat. I mean, they say, you know. <laughs> a lot of uh, companies that use uh, finely textured lean meat as additives for their ground beef have stopped doing that because people say, we don't really like that. But this story got circulated and it was really wildly exaggerated and unfactual in a lot of cases and we just lost our minds. It was a good reminder, I think, you can't believe everything that you see, right? You know that old saying from Abraham Lincoln, you can't believe everything you read on the internet? <laughs> Have you seen that one? <laughs> 
You can't believe everything that you see. You can't believe everything you hear. You can't always believe everything that you read. I want you to keep that in mind as you turn in your Bibles this morning back to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 9. We've got this really weird but interesting story in Joshua chapter 9. Now, just to bring you up to speed, you remember uh, they are now involved in the conquest of the promised land. This land flowing with milk and honey that God has been promising to them for so long, the nation of Israel. He said, I'm, I'm giving you this land. And let's, let's just be upfront. This land is not uninhabited. I mean, people live there because it is a good land. It's not like everybody said, hey, here's some great land. Let's leave it empty. You know, they lived there because it was a great place. But God said, don't worry about it. I'm going to drive out all those people before you. I'm giving you this land. And finally, after a whole series of disobediences and lack of faith, the Israelites have now entered that promised land. We looked at their battle against Jericho, a really powerful and mighty city-state. We looked at their battle against Ai, which went really poorly at first because they had sin in their midst, the sin of Achan. Uh, they, they found that, they rooted it out, they dealt with that, and then they went back and defeated Ai. And then last week we looked at, at the, a thing that every popular military campaign does. Right when they're on a roll, they stopped and took a, a religious pilgrimage, you know, up to do some worshiping, and that seemed really logical, but it made sense for them, right? And now we get caught up to this point. And this is Joshua chapter 9. Verse 1 says this, as soon as all the kings who are beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, heard of this, stop, heard of those battles I just mentioned, the battle at Jericho, the battle at Ai, these conquests that had already gone the Israelites' way. When they heard about all this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua in Israel. Now, again, militarily speaking, that seems like prudent, doesn't it? It seems like a good plan. In fact, I mentioned last week, part of what is brilliant about this military campaign is they kind of cut across the middle of the promised land first. They come from the, the east and they, they cut this swath across the middle, cutting north and south apart from each other to make some of this a little more difficult. But some of these kings now, they say, you know what we got to do? We got to band together. Because keep in mind, Canaan, this promised land, it's not like it's a nation, what you had were a lot of individual fiefdoms, you know? You had all these little city-states with a city and the king of that city who, who was in charge of that city and, you know, a surrounding area that was around it. But you had all of these sort of independent, very small states. Well, now they say, you know what we got to do? We got to join up. We got to band together. Let's, uh, let's do this, and we will come back to that thought and talk about how that goes for them later on. But in the meantime, verse 3, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning. Okay, stop right there. They decide, let's not take part in, in this new alliance that's happening or alliances you know 
let's do something different. And I think you're going to find, if you're not familiar with this story, this cunning, it's pretty cunning. (laughs) This is really good. They had a cunning plan. And so here's what they do. They went and they made ready provisions. And they took worn out sacks for their donkeys. Stop here for just a moment. I want you to just notice how many times this term worn out is used. (laughs) It's pretty great. So they they put worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins, which were worn out and torn and then mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And you might be thinking, what? What are they doing? Well, look at what happens. Verse six, they went on to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and they said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, well, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? You got that? Um, this all harkens back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. You can turn with me to that if you want. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, some of the Lord's commands to them as they, they go in to start this whole process. Remember, Deuteronomy is written on the east side of the Jordan River before they would crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. Just as an aside, I love that, that that point is made. Look, these nations, they're better than you are. They're stronger than you are. They're more numerous than you are. doesn't matter, right? These seven nations that are more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. So that's why back in Joshua, the Israelites have this question. They say, well, what? now wait a minute. They recognize this could be a trick. That's clever of them, right? Hmm. Wait a minute, we're not supposed to make treaties with anybody here. And here come these people, we don't recognize them, and they're saying, make a treaty with us. We have to be careful here. We gotta watch out for this. And they say even out loud to these people, how do we know you don't live here? How can we be sure that you don't live in this nation, this country, this land that we're supposed to take? Well, verse eight Back in Joshua chapter 9, verse 8 says, They said to Joshua, We're your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? Where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants, come now, make a covenant with us. They say, no, 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 no. 
We don't live here. We came from a long ways away. A place you probably haven't heard of, you know. (laughs) It's not really on any maps. But trust us, we came from a long ways away. They do something else really clever. You remember that they've got these worn-out clothes and worn-out sandals and worn-out bags on their donkeys and worn-out wineskins. Everything's worn out, you know. They look all haggard, and they probably didn't comb their hair that morning either, you know. They look really worn out. But there's this extra little subtle thing that they do. You notice what they don't mention when they say, we heard about everything the Lord your God has been doing. They don't mention Jericho or Ai. Isn't that smart? Because if they just arrived in this place sort of newly, they shouldn't have heard about Jericho and Ai yet, right? So they just mention, oh yeah, we heard about that stuff that God did in Egypt. And then they mention these major battles that happened before they crossed the Jordan. We didn't look at those together because they weren't really germane to our discussion, but, but they mentioned those things, but they very cleverly say, do you see how cunning they are? They don't mention anything about Jericho or AI. So this really seems like a plausible idea, this story that they're telling. And now they say, verse 12, look, here's our bread. (laughs) Get this, this is so good. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. Isn't that good? I don't know where they got this dry, crumbly bread. But they they said, this bread, you'll never believe it. But when we left home, We took this like right out of the oven. We wrapped it in a towel and it was still just hot and fresh. And now look at it. I mean, they're really laying it on thick, these guys. (laughs) These wineskins, they say, were new when we filled them. And behold, they've burst. This was, you know, we don't really use wineskins, but this was a common thing too. You would make a wineskin out of new leather, But over time, you know, that leather would get really, you know how leather can get when you don't treat it. It gets all dry and brittle and and, and, and they burst. And they said, and so we had to patch them up, you know, because we, look at these wineskins, look at this dry, crumbly bread. So, verse 14, the men, that is the Israelites, took some of their provisions but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And I want to point out, this took some of their provisions. This is not simply to say that they like tested them, that they took some and said, oh, hmm, yeah, it is dry and crumbly. When it says they took some of their provisions, what's really being stated there is that these Gibeonites said, share some food with us. You know, we don't have much. It's old, but, but sit down with us and, and break this dry, crumbly bread with us. And they had provisions together, which, as many of you know, especially in this culture, that alone is is sort of tantamount to making a covenant with someone, to sit down. And it seems strange to us. I don't know how many of you remember when uh, uh, Peter, in the book of Acts, goes to the, the, the centurion's house, and one of the things that happens is he eats with him there. And when he comes back, so many of the Jews said, you did what? You ate with them? 
mean, it seems like, what's the big deal to us? But even that eating with a Gentile was just, they really didn't, they frowned on that. It's a similar thing here. It might not seem like much, but this sharing of provisions, this was kind of a big deal. And Joshua, verse 15, made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Some of you have that, that additional by an oath. They made this oath with them. And here again, you know, we, we make oaths and break them pretty easily, you know, in our society. It's half the reason we have courts of law, I think, you know, is to <laughs> contract law and oaths and covenants that have been broken and who, you know, it was maybe a little more serious to them. They, they swore this oath. They made this covenant. They made this peace with these people. Then verse 16 says, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors and that they lived among them. <laughs> I, I don't know how they heard this. I mean, in my mind, this is, this is completely speculative, you understand. But in my mind, you know, at some point, Joshua or somebody else said, hey, can I introduce you to my new friend, Bob? He comes from a long ways away. And somebody said, that's not Bob. He lives down the street. I, I mean, I recognize that guy. He doesn't come from a long ways away. He lives, I know this guy. I bought pears from him last week. What are you talking about? You know, I, I, mean, I don't know how this came out. But somehow they figure out after three days, wait a minute. They don't come from a, they, they do live here. Which, of course, is a problem. Verse 17 says, the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepherah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. There's so much going on here. I mean, if you live in one of these cities... If you're one of these Gibeonites and you see this army marching up to you, this people that numbers in the thousands and thousands, uh, the total people, even in the millions, but, but the fighting men, we've been told, is in the neighborhood of 600,000. And they're mad. You ever have somebody walk up to you to have a conversation and you can just tell they're mad? You know? Do you like being on the receiving end of that? When somebody walks up to you like this, <laughs> you know, and if it's 600,000 of them, they're shaking in their boots. But I love the way that the, the leaders say, wait a minute, we can't, the people want to attack. They're hot. They've been, they've been made fools of. They feel like a bunch of idiots. They say, we got lied to. Let's let's not just wipe these people out. Let's make it hurt. And the leaders, I, I do appreciate this. The leaders choosing to understand that two wrongs don't make a right, you know. They say, whoa, 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 time out. We, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, 
We made a covenant with these people. We swore an oath on the name of our God that we would we can't just attack them. We got to pump the brakes. But now they have this situation where the people are grumbling, the people are mad at their leadership because they don't, they don't agree with their decision. And you got all these Gibeonites shaking and quaking in their cities and wondering what's going to happen. It's a mess. It's a complete mess. But all the leaders, verse 19 All the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us. Take that real seriously. You see, this is not a small thing. We can't just break this covenant, this oath that we've, if we do that, God's wrath will rightly be on us. So, we're going to let them live. Uh, Because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became and said, cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. (laughs) Again, it's just such a curious, like what? How'd they get there? Well, I'll tell you in part how they got there. If you want to turn back to Deuteronomy, and again, you don't have to. Deuteronomy chapter 20. There's this extra detail here. Deuteronomy chapter 20. There's a heading in my Bible, maybe yours too. It says laws concerning warfare, some real specific laws. They've been told in general, you're not going to make treaties with these people. You're going to kick them out. They're completely devoted to God for destruction. They're like a, a, a sacrifice, you know. But now he says this, verse uh, 1 of chapter 20. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you're drawing near for battle against your enemies. Don't let your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight against your enemies to give you the victory. But now jump ahead to verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it in your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword, the women and the little ones alive. And he goes on with these rules. But there is this allowance there to offer them peace. And if they, if they accept this peace, then you'll make them do forced labor for you. And this is where they land in Joshua. He says, okay, we'll make them our woodcutters and the drawers of water, not drawers of water, some of you read that and you think of a chest of drawers filled with water. That's a water draw, you know, like when you draw water from a well. Water drawers. <laughs> it's hard to say. We'll make them draw our water. We'll make them cut our wood. And what's interesting is they get pressed into service very specifically for the tabernacle. And we're not going to look at all of them, but there are references later on 
to these Gibeonites who continue to serve the tabernacle and then serve the temple. There's a reference as late as Nehemiah, and just to remind you, you know, of Nehemiah's historical context, this is hundreds of years later. This is after the exile. Nehemiah is post-exilic history when they've all been taken away out of the promised land, but now they've been allowed to come back. And Nehemiah, remember, is, is the one who heads up the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem, this whole process. And in the context of Nehemiah, the Gibeonites are mentioned as continuing to serve the temple. So this is really interesting. They kind of take lemons and make lemonade out of it. You know, Joshua summoned them, verse 22, and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? (laughs) May I just say, that's kind of an obvious question, or at least the answer to the question is pretty obvious. Why did you deceive us? The obvious answer is, because we didn't want to die, right? Why'd you guys lie to us? But he says, you deceived us. You lied. And he says in verse 23, now therefore you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. Verse 24, they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you. And we did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. Verse 26, so he did this to them, and he delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. For a time... The, the Ark of the Covenant resides in Gibeon. I mean, these people have a long now association with the tabernacle, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant. They become now servants. It's a weird story, isn't it? What do you do with a story like this? Well, I think first, as I pointed out at the beginning with our picture of the pink slime, You can't trust everything you hear. I mean, we can just take that. You just can't trust everything that you hear. As it turns out, sometimes people lie. Every now and then, sometimes people make stuff up. I hate this thought. I will admit to you, I'm too trusting. I mean, it, and I think it's because we we think that people, you know, we tend to have this notion that most people are like us, you know? And it doesn't really occur to me to just lie in somebody's face, and so I kind of figure, well, they probably wouldn't lie to my face either. Well, some of them will. Some of them do. 
To this day, I don't know why in all cases. You know, the picture of the pink slime, I'm not sure what was really gained by the person who started that, that rumor. They probably personally, I, I, well, I do sort of know why. There are these things on the internet called trolls, and sometimes they just kind of have contests with each other. Let's see who can make a crazy story go the furthest in the shortest period of time. I mean, they, they sort of, you know, message each other and they have little contests about it, you know. But it's weird. Like, there was nothing to be gained from that necessarily, unless they just had a big grudge against McDonald's. I, I, I don't know. But there it is. There it was. We still see. You can't necessarily believe everything you hear. You can't believe everything you read. And I, I just want to say something hard. That's true, even if the person saying or writing or whatever is a Christian. <laughs> I mean, I, sometimes I think we give a pass. Well, so-and-so is a believer, and so they must... No, that's not... You know how we got the name of our church? I know you know. I mean, we, you know, we've talked about this before. But that name Berean comes from the reference in Acts chapter 17, where they were, they were noted, the Bereans, the people from the city of Berea, they were noted as noble, more noble than a lot of other peoples because they didn't just take what was taught to them even by the apostle Paul. They didn't just take it and say, okay, they took it and they took it home and they read their own scriptures and measured it up to make sure that it was true. And not only is the Apostle Paul and the rest of the apostles not offended by that, they say, oh, look, that's a model. That's a standard. They were more noble than a lot of other people because of that. There are lots of wolves in sheep's clothing. But what's the biggest problem here? The biggest problem isn't simply that you can't believe everything you read, that you can't believe everything you hear. The biggest issue here isn't for us to become more cynical about life. What was the biggest problem here? I know you know. We read it together. It's right there. It's made very plain. It's in verse 14. They took the men of Israel, they took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Isn't that really the problem? Isn't that truly the issue here? Remember, Joshua, as the leader of this nation, has been given a mechanism by which he can inquire of the Lord. And God said, listen, Joshua, my relationship with you is going to be somewhat different than my relationship with Moses was. Moses was really special. Moses and I talked face to face like a couple of friends. It'll be a little different for you, but you still, you can make inquiries through the priest by the mechanism of this Urim and Thummim. We've talked about those before these special stones that the priest would use to receive messages from God that he would then pass on to Joshua. And we've seen it happen before, but for whatever reason, in this instance, Joshua and his fellow leaders of Israel, those elders, those princes, some of your, your translations say, they didn't do this. Instead, they kind of relied on 
their own cunning. I mean, no one would just lie to our face, right? And, and look, they really do have ratty sandals. And their clothes really are really worn out. And yeah, look at those wineskins. I mean, we know what wineskins look like. Those are old wineskins. And that bread. Did you get a load of that bread? It all seemed on the up and up. And so rather than taking the extra time to inquire of the Lord, and this is sad because they've just taken a whole bunch of extra time to go and make these sacrifices and to to read aloud as a whole congregation, as a whole people, the law together, the blessings and the curses. They do all that. And now they come back here, though, and and for expediency's sake, they decide, well, we won't do that. Or they just forgot, or I don't know. But in the end, Joshua and the fellow leaders sort of rely on their own cunning, their own senses, the fact that it seemed to make an okay bit of sense and seemed kind of plausible. And they do this thing, and because of that, they fall into disobedience. Let's just call a spade a spade. Because of this, because they did not inquire of the Lord, They fell into disobedience. God said, don't make a treaty with these people that live here. And they did. Now they sort of repaired it. They didn't try to combine two wrongs to make a right. You know, they they did their best. But they were not supposed to, when these people came up and said, make a treaty with us, the answer was supposed to be no. They fell into disobedience. They did something else though. They damaged their testimony of the living God. You notice that? I mean, everything that they do, everything that they say, the ways that they behave, it is all a testimony of God. And now what they've done is they've, made, they've, they've been made to look like a bunch of fools because they wouldn't just ask God, God, is this right? Is this okay? And now their actual testimony has suffered. They do look foolish. That guy that said, that, that's Bob. I mean, he didn't come from a long ways away. He came from down the street. And then they had to blush and, oh, what an idiot. I, you know. But it all reflected on their God. This people that is supposed to be transmitting his glory. You can't believe everything you hear. So what should they have done with this? More important, what should you and I do with this? Inquire of the Lord. Yeah? Inquire of the Lord. There are a couple of ways that we can do that. Joshua had the Urim and the Thummim. I want to suggest we've got something a lot better. Here goes this broken record again. What is with this guy always telling us to read our Bibles? But really, read your Bibles. <laughs> we all, I think we diminish or we forget What an incredible treasure this is we have. It's God's word to us. 
you can download it for free on your phone. It's, do you know what a treasure that is? I've said so many times, do you know how many saints that have gone before us, before the invention of things like the printing press, you know, they would just be blown away, flabbergasted by the fact that we all have this? What? We used to have to pay a ton of money for a scribe to sit there and copy it to have a copy. I never had a copy at home. There was a copy in my synagogue. There was a copy in my church, but I, I never got to have a copy. Do you know what an incredible treasure this is? God has spoken to us through this. And the first thing we can do in trying to determine whether something is true or false or right or wrong is inquire of the Lord through that. Inquire of the Lord through that. When we have that, when we know it well, then when something comes up that is in contradiction to a clear commandment here, we can say, that's not right. That has to be false because God's already spoken to me here. One of Satan's greatest tricks is getting lots of us, I say us, right? Getting lots of us to disobey God and actually believe in our hearts it's because God told us that it was okay. No, he didn't. Somebody else did. If something is clearly contradictory to something that is clearly in his word, it's false. But there are a lot of things that aren't clearly laid out here, you know? If you really want to know what God's will for you is for lunch today, you're not going to find the answer there, right? Does God want you to have a sub sandwich or pizza? I don't know. P.S. I don't think he cares. You know, I mean, we've had other conversations about this. You know, we can take this to sort of a ridiculous degree and wonder, what's God's will for every little thing? You know, what, does God have a will for what I eat for lunch? Probably not. But I will suggest this, that we're better off to err on the side of seeking God's will too much than too little. Is that fair to say? Is that okay? And I think where this word isn't perfectly clear on a subject, then we have another tool. We pray for insight. What did we see in James recently when we studied James together? If any of you lacks wisdom, just ask God. He'll give it to you. You know, and I think part of the problem with that is we sometimes hear that passage as, if any of you is really stupid and you need help, that's not what that means. In fact, I think part of wisdom is recognizing that the answer to the question, do I lack wisdom, is always, yes, I do. I still do. Am I wiser than I was a decade ago? Well, I hope so. <laughs> But that doesn't mean I'm completely filled up with wisdom, that I have all of it I need. I think the answer to me, every time I think, do I lack wisdom, ought to be, yes, I do. I still do. You still do. 
We're not just full up because we're not God. But praise be to God. He says, if you lack wisdom, and it's one of those clauses, it's more like, you know, when you lack wisdom, just ask God and he'll give you wisdom. He'll give you discernment. He'll help you with that answer. 1 John 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We have a lot of false prophets today. Nothing's new under the sun, right? This idea of people lying, of people attempting to pull the wool over our face, that wasn't unique to the nation of Israel in Joshua chapter 9. It's us. It might be more prevalent now than ever because our world has gotten so much smaller by virtue of, of the internet. You know, technology has just sort of shrunk everything down so that we're sort of close to everything and we see everything and it's right there right now and it's even more prevalent. But you and I are called to test those things. First and foremost, to test them against this. To test them against this. If there's something that God has told you here and then you get a a message or a feeling or, or something even from another believer that says something different, that message is wrong, it's false, it's untrue. And you run the risk of A, stepping into disobedience and B, ruining your testimony for Christ by looking like a gullible fool. Don't do it. Test it. And where this isn't perfectly clear, you pray for wisdom. You pray for discernment. We need that. Just like Joshua needed God to step in and say, Joshua, I know this looks good. It's false though. It's wrong. It's a lie. We need to hear God's voice. And when we're not seeking it, we're very unlikely to hear it. Can't believe everything you hear. But praise be to God, you have some tools to help you discern between the true and the false, the good and the bad, the right and the wrong. You have his word. You have his promise that when you pray to him for wisdom, he will give it to you generously. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We have it an awful lot easier than the Israelites did in a lot of ways. We have ready access without the means of a priest to our God. Let's use that. Let's test everything. Let's make inquiry of our God all the time to know whether what we're hearing is right or wrong. Our Father God, we thank you this day for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how fantastically wealthy we are to have it, to have ready access to it. God, you've been so generous to us. 
We praise you for that. But God, some of us are guilty of not inquiring of the Lord. We listen to what seems wise. We get duped. We get fooled. We hear things that seem plausible. We go with it rather than stopping to inquire of the Lord. God, help us to do better at this. We don't want to be disobedient to you. We don't want to wreck our testimony of you. And so help us to be gentle as doves, but wise as serpents, as we test the spirits and seek inquiry in you. Thank you, God. We pray that you would convict us in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own circumstances. Help us to follow you more closely this day. In Christ's name, amen.